if you have the right cultural fabric to keep thinking that i have to simplify if it's 10 steps i have to get it to five steps you know but you can only do that if there's out of the 8 to 10 people they all understand the value if you're the one or two designer or a pm trying to do that and the engineers don't really get it yeah. they can empathize with it it's hard so that's the the biggest thing that i found is any group that has a high degree of empathy for simplification is directly proportional to how effective you are in simplifying the next time Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Zero to Exit. This is Ankur and Dilima. In today's show, we are excited to have with us Sunil Patti, a VP and GM for Google Cloud Security Business. Prior to Google, Sunil was the CPO at Nutanix, a leader in hyperconverged infrastructure. He also held product leadership roles at Citrix, F5, Cisco and others. Sunil is what I call the billion dollar PM. He has consistently led market leading products, is a master of scale. In this episode, we'll talk about how to consistently find the right company to work for, how to land the top role, and how to build, scale, and sell great products. Hey, Sunil, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Ankur and Nilma. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. I know uh, it's busy season for you and Google and everybody, but I we really appreciate uh, you taking the time. I want to kick things off by asking you, kind of, what's been the biggest surprise for you in the last one year, uh, either? personally or professionally i would say that interestingly it's probably uh, something that is touches both profession and i think personal in the sense clearly it has to at least i'm not different than most folks where the pandemic is really top of mind but i actually really dig working from home <laughs> and the reason why it's surprising is i'm what people think is a highly uh, highly uh, extroverted social person yeah i like hanging out with people hanging out with teams have meetings go out you know bond with folks and so forth for someone like that clearly there was uh, the initial personally as well as with uh, some colleagues and others like oh it's going to be pretty tough for folks like you mm-hmm. and i think i was able to kind of get away earlier on when things were a little bit open to kind of get the burst of meeting folks outside and so forth but what actually turned out to be the case is that to me personally is like uh i really love working from home just taking walks making calls and and in many ways i am way more productive than being 5 10 minutes late to a meeting constantly and having to show up in a conference room and then there's four or the 10 people are anywhere remote you know the usual things that we're all you know stressed out about the commute and all right so so in many ways i think both professionally and personally i think i'm looking forward to the fact that there's probably zero chance that most companies will go back to the usual way of working yeah. i'm sure the next 6 to 12 months will be an experiment uh, at least in google we're definitely going to do a couple of experiments and personally i'm looking forward to like this sort of like new way of working uh, that will also impact my personal life and my professional life so yeah uh, couldn't agree more I, i often talk about this in the podcast as well like i've i've never worked from home ever and then like last one year has been a revelation it's actually everything is fine i mean you're more productive and get to spend more time with the family my second i thought the your big you were going to say your biggest surprise is that you would have never thought one in a million year that uh, this uh, 
artist called Beepo is going to sell an art uh, for $68 million over an NFT on a blockchain. Yeah, I guess there's many, many surprises, frankly, put it this way, over the last year, right? So, yeah. So I'll, I'll uh, pivot to your career a bit, Sunil. As I look at your career from Cisco, F5, Citrix, Nutanix, and now Google, you've been at the right company at the right time. How did you manage to consistently bet on the right horse? Yeah, I know I know. we talked a little bit about this before, Nilman Ankur. See, my take is actually in many ways, what might look like a good trajectory is all relative, right? It could have been much better depending on the opportunities I didn't take. Uh, as well as obviously, you know, much worse. If I look at it as an optimistic lens, I would say that 15 years ago, like most folks, you know, probably in their early part of their career and so forth, reasonably aggressive about outcomes, growth, and all that usual stuff. One thing I was pretty clear about even then was I don't think, you know, now I know, but at that point I was pretty clear that I wasn't an entrepreneur who would actually go found things, Okay. And, uh, you know, if you watch the movie uh, Enter the Dragon, there's this guy called John Saxon. And there's this very famous uh, line that he uses called, uh, you know, the scene is like, you know, you have to go fight Bruce Lee. And both of them are good people. But and this guy goes, look, I'm a man that knows my limitations. So I think so one of the things to sort of think through your career trajectory is not what just you can do, but what you can't do also, in my opinion. And that's hard when you're you know, younger and aggressive and ambitious and, you know, all that stuff, right? So for me, I think the optimistic thing is that earlier in my life, I missed out on some opportunities. Uh, I just say that I could have been like, say, an, an, you know, an engineering lead in one of our larger social media companies in 2006. But then I was enamored by being a director at Cisco, one of the younger guys. And, you know, why would I go and take another job at a, some, some other company that was much smaller, right? So after I missed on some of those opportunities, very, very quickly, I started optimizing for the opportunity, then the role. And many folks figure this out, but earlier in your career is normally to, to kind of make that trade off is very hard because you're, you're sort of like gifted with roles and more increasing responsibility and to kind of take a step down to kind of be a smaller fish in a 10x larger pond is, is much harder when you're younger. And uh, so that's probably one of the core things that probably helped me was that partly I knew I wasn't a, one of these entrepreneurs who just wanted to kind of go big and all that. I could build stuff, I could scale stuff, but you know, entrepreneuring, as you all know, is different. And the second thing that I learned, but probably a little later, maybe not early, but mid-stage is the fact to optimize for the opportunity, not the role. And that's really what happened was when Netscaler came on after F5, it was similar, but really what I looked at was rather than look at the enterprise opportunity, how would we actually go after, you know, coming from behind? Uh, because in Citrix, Netscaler was like a stepchild to some extent. And all large companies, they have the saying, right? When you have a multi-product company, uh, you can't teach the sales guy new tricks when the, they're making quota on their old tricks. Yeah. And as long as the primary product is making money, it's pretty hard to grow a second business. That's one of the fundamental reasons why people acquire companies, right? So, but in the case of Netscape, what happened was that at least when I was at F5 and others, I could see how F5 was so enamored by the enterprise that there was this emerging opportunity at that time, this is 2009, that people didn't really pay attention to things called cloud because there wasn't something called cloud. And there was all this growth happening on all these startups using Amazon at that time, right? So, and obviously all that build required uh, a scalable infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. So as long as there was an, an instinct or an idea to kind of 
look at the opportunity being different. The role was pretty similar, frankly, between F5 and Citrix. It's just that because the opportunity was different, the impact or the outcome spending three years at Citrix was not 2x more than F5. It was more like 5x more than F5 because the outcome went from whatever, $50 million to a billion dollar business and so forth, right? So I would say that, let me pause there and I'm sure there's yeah. probably questions, but it's really the pivot on opportunity versus role. I think the earlier in life that folks do, I think the better off they are. So one of the things I was going to ask you later on, but like one of the things that I've, as we've read more about you is like looking around the corners for opportunities. Um, so let's say, you know, you're, you're doing really well in one company for you to be able to see what the future is starting to look, right? Like what just recently, what Coinbase founders saw, a lot of people didn't see that. How do you look around the corners individually, not just in product decision, but when you think about career and, and, and we want some practical advice for our listeners, like, you know, you're working in a company, good 20, 30% year over year business, but there's a big paradigm shift happening elsewhere. How do you seize those moments? Yeah, yeah. No, man, it's hard. I mean, I, and I, frankly, it's you know, even with Coinbase, for example, right? Yeah. Two years ago, and the company is what? A dozen years old or something like that now, right? It's not Clubhouse. Yes. Two years ago, I don't know if people would have said, oh, yeah, Coinbase, right? So yeah. that means that they've been doing it for like seven, eight years without the world recognizing that there was actually a, a corner that was turned, right? There is no, at least my personal take on something like this is I'm good, but not great at being extremely curious. And so you can only look around corners when there's, rather than look for opportunities, look for people who constantly want to do that. And you curate your relationships to at least have a few people like that. You know, obviously they're not normal people in a normal situation, but and, and you'd be surprised how many times the turning around corners is not as much as looking around something. It's to actually follow the instincts of people who are extremely curious. And then it's up to you as a person to kind of connect the dots a little bit, obviously do some testing and then, you know, put some filters on it, get some signal from the noise. Because for the extremely curious people, there's also a reasonable degree of noise, in my opinion, just because their personalities are like that. So if you're like one step removed, that I think in my opinion is the art, is the one step removed from that extreme curiosity, which allows you to bring a level of balance, but still being leaning in around being open to what is, what's actually going on. Why are these folks doing this? Why is somebody talking about this area, right? And that allows you to kind of then lean in to learn more and then you go do your connection with God. So, so in, in summary, I would say that when people are talking like in the world of security right now, a lot of people like are talking about governance and regulations because of Cloud Act, the local California Act or European, you know, Schrems to regulation. I'm now getting into some, you know, security related stuff. But when you see those themes emerging and, and the nationalistic regimes are actually locking in post-Trump, then you know that there's probably a new era hmm. of governance emerging. Yeah, because once you go there, they're they're not going to come back, right? It's it's like China. Basically, once they became nationalistic and they're going to build stuff internally, the rest of the folks have a role model to kind of just say, "Let me go." So anyway, just as an example. Yeah, you you kind of mentioned a management concept that I've been reading. Uh, start from doing to leading, and that's more of a management thing. But you, what you're saying is, when you're following the ideas, follow the people who are kind of curating. Correct. Um, the Correct. curious ideas and then 
focus on one theme and then go after it basically yeah yeah interesting point of view i just don't know whether you know it's it's you know sound enough but generally it's not even a fast follower type it's it's there's this art of being not the first person off the door hmm. but oh. but just being that really close second just so that you have the option to come back or the option but you don't lose the opportunity to go all in yeah. if it makes sense yeah and that's a little bit of an art and uh, and you know that's what people talk about as timing right quote unquote to some extent yeah. so. Yeah, I mean, you you minimize the risk um, because the first person walking in that door is the entrepreneur, which is either committing a suicide or going to make $20 billion like the Coinbase CEO did. Uh, yeah. But if you're the second guy, you're still, you know, ending up with a yeah, big payoff. Thing, it, depends yeah. on, it depends on the personalities and all that. That's what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, is that I think yeah. if, the, if you're a product person or a normal, like if you're going down your normal stuff, I think maybe something like that makes sense. But if you have a chip on your shoulder, you want to run your own company and this is the only way you want to grow and all that, you'll have no problem being the first person out of the door. And and one point that you mentioned is it's so important to also know that what you're not going to do. Little practical examples there. How do you kind of evolve that decision tree? There's things in that dimension that apply to your career, as I mentioned, right? Whether mm-hmm. to... Just because you became successful and then there's a constant set of VCs that will always go to you and then you'll find that it's quite enamoring to kind of go build something just because there's money available, right? A lot of people do that, as, as we know. And these days, especially, there's a lot more money uh, available. So I think on the on the career side, there's quite a bit of that that I think, again, there's nothing wrong in trying it out. It's just that at some point soon in your life, if you can... If you can learn to ensure that, look, just just because things are available doesn't mean you should do them. So this is where you just have to kind of really have a filter on, does, is this the right thing for you? Are you willing to kind of go the distance? And mm-hmm. that's what I meant by entrepreneuring versus, you know, joining something, Series B or something like that. And there's no harm and foul as long as you're authentic about it, right? Mm-hmm. And and most companies actually prefer authentic leaders who, who sort of like, hey, look, could I have done a decent job in the founding team? Probably. But if things went sour and all, would that was that something that I would wake up in the morning and really care for? Probably not me, right? But there are a lot of other people like that, right? So that's, that's the, just an example of knowing what your limitations are. Similarly, I would say on your uh, in independent of a career side, even in product journeys, even in personal lives and all, I think... Like, you know, we talk about product scaling all the time, right? And yeah. we talk about product market fit. The whole definition of product market fit is to accept what your product cannot do. Yes. Most folks who are in the ambition of building products, you'd be surprised how many people don't apply that filter, right? Yeah. And so anyway, because the easy way to define product market fit is to give them a big market. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot about product growth. Actually, that's going to be the, the, the product pieces because that's kind of the, really the main thing we want to discuss. But before we get there... I do want to kind of segue into the next section, which is, you know, it's hard enough to find the right horse to bet on. Uh, It's even harder to be the top jock riding that horse. You've been the top jock in a lot of the, especially the last four or five companies and managed to land the top product role at least, right? I'd love for you to sort of talk about some of the core principles that has led you to land that role. You know, I think what sort of, a lot of people don't recognize is people are like, well, if I work hard enough and I learn enough, the universe will give me the top role. 
And one of the things I've learned is that that's maybe foundational or not even that important. What have you learned along your journey to kind of got you in the position that you have been consistently in? Yeah, I mean, I think this obviously in itself is a long discussion that will require a lot to cover everything. Yeah. But I'll tell you a few things that come to mind. I look, First of all, look, yeah, was I a top product guy maybe at Nutanix? And, and ironically, like Google, I'm not the top product guy. Or you know, yes, of course. Such, yeah, these are all relevant roles, but maybe not yes. the top role, right? But the spirit of the question is, Yes. Like, how do you chart that trajectory, uh, yes. both on opportunity and role? Like, yes. remember, like five minutes ago, we talked about optimize for opportunity. opportunity. Yes. Yeah, but can you do both? Then you get yes. a force multiplier, right? Opportunity yes. and yes. role is where you're done, right? Yeah. So let's talk about that for a second. So I think if you do well and you're able to kind of have those instincts of looking around corners and a few things, remember I was talking about following people, looking, you know, in addition to doing great job executing as, as part of the course, uh, then you'll be able to sense when opportunity is opening up and you're putting those filters to kind of be in the first 15% that mm -hmm. recognizes that opportunity. Yeah. So that gets you in the game because if you're in the first 15%, the chances of you being set up to do a good role is way higher than being in the 50 percentile, right? Just because by that time, either the person already there would have grown or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah. So, so that's one way to get opportunity times role is to be in the first 15% of an opportunity that you look at. Yeah. You don't have to be in the first 1%, which is the founding team, but the first 15% or so. Yeah. And then as long as the you know opportunity is scaling, your role automatically gets to the top. And there are many, yeah. many folks like that that we've seen, right? So that's your what I would call the standard technique is optimize for opportunity, but make sure that you're not too hesitant. As in like, you're not 1%, but you're not like, don't wait for series F. Yeah. You know, make sure that you're in between A and B or you know, equivalent of that. And that, by the way, that applies not just to small companies, that applies to big companies too, right? I mean, yeah. when there's a new product initiative, the early maybe one, two things are, you know, harder, but but once it gets going, if I'm an engineer, if I'm a product person and so forth, sort of like being the person that maybe was the second person beyond the GM to kind of help define that new product area inside my Nuco and write that to 50 million, 100 million, whatever it is then defines you, right? Yeah. So that's one way to get the opportunity times role. The The second way, which is much more elusive and probably much more uh, elitist and to some extent, hopefully folks all get to that is where not only is the opportunity well-known and waiting, but the role is opened up for someone. Like mm. you. In, you could argue that the larger the opportunity or the better the opportunity the bigger the roles, the big roles are not as open anymore, either because they're already taken and so forth. But then you see this all the time, right? I mean, you know, yeah. with Snowflake, with Slootman being brought in as CEO and all, right? Yeah. So you see this with CEO jobs, you'd be surprised that it also happens with product jobs. It definitely happens with sales jobs and so forth. So so that's when I think that's a little limited just because that you're talking about maybe 10, 20 people per year that are uh, in that category. Yeah. But at some point, if you can get to be that 10 or 20 people per year in a certain segment, then that's another way to maximize opportunity time. So, and, and, and what I mean by that is, just to kind of put things in perspective, right, is imagine a Series D company, you know you're going to go public in a year or two, and highly likely you normally look for a head of sales or a CFO. CFO most of the time, maybe head of sales, Yeah. Very few times they look for a head of product or engineering or things like that, unless something's broken, right? 
at that point in time, they'll score the valley and look for 10, 20 people to, to choose from. Essentially, what based on whatever work you've done, they're giving you that opportunity times role because they want that expertise. And, and so that is something that is earned by you know, a whole bunch of things that you've done in your past lives to for them to actually have given you that uh, that opportunity, right? So anyway, so those are those are the two things. Basically, go yeah. early, uh, but not too early, but go in the fifteen percent, and then or do enough, which is what we can get into the details as to what are all the things that allow you to be recruited in Series D and F as a CPO. So got it. So that's a really good practical advice to sort of land the top role to begin with. Um, a lot of people have sort of are curious also about you are organically moving within an organization, right? And consistently going higher and higher. And I'm I'm just finishing up Robert Greene's 48 Laws of Power. I'm on law number 36. And I, once I'm done with 48, I mean, the, you know, I, I'm going to conquer the world. But um, the first law uh, in the book is um, do not outshine your boss. Mm, okay. Mm. Uh, my question to you is that as people think about moving up their career and your personal experience, how do you get to your boss's role? It depends on who you are. It depends on who your boss is. Yeah. It depends on the company that you're in. I mean, there's lots of dimensions there. I yeah. think, first of all, my instinctive reaction is I don't think I'll follow that law or I agree that law to that law. At least in these <laughs> times, I'm sure there's lots of examples. And there's some truth yeah. there, right? Like human yeah. humans don't like to be outshot. Right? Exactly. But ultimately, I think, look, let me try to answer that one way. Again, going back to my, if your opportunity is growing 10x to 100x, your boss is also growing yeah. 10x. So for you to do a boss's job is just a logical state of being, right? You can still be a boss, but it's like you're kind of like your boss as long as the opportunity went up 10x. So, and even in those situations, what I've also found is there's less insecurities. Yeah. When people, instead of making $1 million, they make 10 or 100 or a billion, people tend to become more gregarious. So in many ways, if you have a limited opportunity or an incremental opportunity is when you really have to worry about all these things. If the pie keeps getting bigger and bigger, you don't have to worry about all the slicing and dicing. Yeah, That's why I say that, look, frankly, if you're able to make a fork in your path on opportunity, that's why it comes back to that way sooner. A lot of downstream things become easier. Yeah. That's a great point, actually, um, about the pie becoming bigger. Never thought of yeah. it in that yeah. way. From a career building standpoint um, and related question, how would you split your time in this bigger pie? You know, the pie is becoming bigger. So you obviously have an opportunity, but how much time should you spend managing up, um, down and sideways? I, I think in general, by the way, you know, when we talk about career management, I think there's a there's a bipolar answer that I think I want to give here, which is at some point you want to be intentional in career management. Mm-hmm. No question about it. But I don't know if that is the leading indicator, Neelam. Let me mm-hmm. tell you what I mean by that. Bezos or somebody has this inputs, outputs. So basically the, 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 the general thing about what is a leading indicator, what's a lagging indicator. Like if you have great products and a great market and great customer satisfaction, you have great top line revenue, right? You know, a stock yeah. price. So that's yeah. lagging. This is the leading. So I would say that I, intentional career management is important, but it feels to me like it's a it's more on the lagging side. What is probably more leading, that's why when you think about managing up versus side versus down, that means that you're making that the primary thing, yeah? However, 
if you focused more on it, and again, it varies by opportunity, opportunity, it's easier said than done, right? Uh, yeah. But predominantly, I think people, even in the worst companies, or in the worst situations, people respect a few core dimensions, right? Which is like, are you highly accountable? Say what you do, do what you say. Yeah. Second, are you reasonably good to work with? And then third, are you someone that is more genuine about what they're doing? Yes, career is important, but they're generally more more concerned about the outcome than the job. Yeah. And that's hard to differentiate. But what I'm saying is that the leaning indicator is to is to let the managing up, down and sideways come as an after effect of an intentional approach to do better things at what you do. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, can I go... And, and source new ideas, even in a normal PM job, right? Can I actually get five customers to come inside and have a pitch to my CEO, right? Yeah. Or somebody like that, right? Basically do things that surprise people that go above and beyond what you're supposed to be. And I think that reduces a lot of the, what I would call the natural, not friction, but the natural requirements to kind of be much more intentional of working upwards, sideways and downwards. I see. So what you're saying is over deliver and basically rest of the things will follow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I know it's easier said than done, but yeah. over delivery could be, it doesn't have to be on the core project, right? It could be in any set of surprises okay. where people are saying, look, this person came and helped me. This person said a good thing. And eventually all those will add up where the system recognizes you as someone that is a little different than the standard. So then you don't have to work extra hard on the standard techniques, if that makes sense. Yep, uh, totally makes sense. Yeah, and it's I, I've I've talked about this in the podcast a couple of times, but like I think Peter Thiel um, back in the PayPal mafia days and Keith Raboy talks about this whole barrels and ammunition analogy, where if there are interesting projects, if you can become the barrel in an organization, mm. like people will naturally seek out to you for interesting project that will lead you to interesting work. And you are right, sort of like thinking too much about like sort of, hey, like how should I manage up and should I spend time? It can be all consuming. Just do the right thing. Basically, be the battle in an organization. Rest will follow. Yeah. And also, I think, look, these days, the world has changed, right? Like even 25 years ago, you know, there were 50 companies that mattered in tech. Yeah, that's true. There are like 5,000 companies. (laughs) There are all kinds of companies that matter, right? And I think the, the era has completely changed, in my opinion, yeah. where yeah. You, you, if you actually give it a shot of being yourself and, you know, whatever, all that good stuff for a couple of years, and for some reason it's not doing well, just maybe it's not the right company. It's okay. Yeah. There's 5,000 opportunities, right? Unlike yeah. 25 years ago, you kind of had to grind it out through at Sun or IBM or something like that, right? Totally. Um, all great points. Uh, yeah. Thanks for it. So we we talked about how to bet on the right horse, uh, how to be top dog. Let's now talk about how to win the race. There is a ton of tribal knowledge in the Silicon Valley around getting zero to initial traction. Mm. What we don't hear is a playbook to do this at scale. What are some core principles you've found across all your companies that have helped you build and scale products? They're generating hundreds of millions of uh, in dollars in revenue. So in, in a nutshell, act two and act three of a growth product, what does sure. it look like? I think, and, and it coincidentally, if I can speak a little bit beyond the Nutanix thing on, on both how Google's, or at least GCP is doing yes. a little bit of that, but also how yes. even, even, in a, even in a not so exciting area like Netscaler, right? There was a variant yeah. of that. But 
Yeah. yeah. I'll talk about Janice as an example. So, but what is the common pattern across all three, I think, is that whether you're building a smaller company or you're building this in a mid-sized company or whatever it is, is to always covet a large opportunity, yeah? Remember, we talked about personal careers, yeah. very yep. congruent to product growth, yeah? Correct. Because in many ways, product growth, career growth, you know, if you treat your career as a product, you know, the same strategies apply, right? And we all know there are multiple acts and all that usual stuff. The trick what I've found is to make sure that the activation energy to go from act one to act two is as low as possible. Obviously, you'll have to find reasonably connected arcs, right? So I don't I mean, we can go into those details, but I'm presuming most people know that, look, you want to kind of revolutionize IT. Let me start with compute and storage because that's what runs most of our workloads. And then let me look left and right and then add some data services on top. And then I'm just giving you a simple journey around cloud, right? I mean, whichever way that people sliced and diced the, the, the three arcs of public cloud. I think in the case of Nutanix, think about it is that the pattern, now whether it was done completely intentionally upfront or over a period of time was that imagine our ambition and an opportunity being about simplifying how infrastructure is operated. And infrastructure, mm -hmm. the, the, the scope of infrastructure was not just compute and storage, it was yeah. everything that touches an IT admin. Okay, and the definition of an IT admin could be everything from, you know, how we are on my virtual machines, how I secure it, how I operate my networks, my, you know, monitoring, everything, right? It could have been a big part, right? But how do you chunk that is you therefore think through a platform approach from day one. But we all know taking a platform approach is extremely dicey because you don't have product market fit, you don't have a compelling thing built, et cetera, et cetera. So you don't you don't do enough to kind of survive from zero to fifty while you're building towards a billion. And we've seen many examples of that. There are a few examples where that works, but we'll come to that separately. But in most enterprises, that doesn't work in my opinion. And so, but however, if you felt like you had a platform approach to support the three arcs, but the first arc happened to be your initial insertion or killer app. So in the case of Nutanix, the, like I said, the platform was being built to simplify IT operations end to end. But our first admin that we tried to help was the storage admin. Got and it. that was a storage admin for virtual desktops. Because the admin for virtual desktops didn't want to go to the storage person all the time, but they needed a lot of compute and storage. You know, they depended on infrastructure. So if you give the power of infrastructure to the virtual desktop user or the admin, then they got their personal infrastructure, basically, as a silo. And that was fine because it was much easier to use, easier to grow. So that was the first step. But architecturally, the platform was being built to support other silos. So the second arc was when you yeah. go to the branch admin. Can we go to then the enterprise admin? Because that allowed you also keep, you know, time to also build features, right? Because as you're building these things, you're also trying to catch up on functionality. Like we didn't have all the functionality that EMC had on day one. So you have to choose wisely where do you, where do you start? So those are other important reasons for these arcs. Mm -hmm. But ultimately what it allowed us to do was to kind of give us three to four years to catch up on what I would call the 80-40 rule, which is 40% of the functionality that hit 80% of the EMC base, okay? And and because we, we shattered it by VDI, then branch, and a few areas that allowed that first arc to pass. But and that was a couple of billion dollar market, right? At least five, 10 billion, if not a few billion, yeah? 
But then that allowed us to raise the bar to then go to the next real art, which is, hey, rather than simplify just compute and storage, everything that's tied to virtualization also needs to be simplified because they're so tightly coupled because yeah. there's very little difference between a VM and a, and a compute instance or a storage access, right? So, so that allowed us to kind of increase the scope as R2 to actually simplify virtualization. And then while we were doing that, it was just a matter of time that people said, look, but virtualization, what if you can, instead of virtualizing compute storage or your data center, can I virtualize clouds? You know, that became the journey. And you're talking about 2016, 2017, about the third arc. And that's a very long arc. Sometimes these arcs are also, what I've found is that the first arc is three to four years. Uh, the second arc is six to seven years. The third arc could be seven to 10 years. Because remember, it, it, they become exponentially both bigger, but also harder. That's why it's important to build it as a platform strategy because you don't want to kind of, you know, take a lot of energy to go from one art to the other. And many companies that don't do it this way, the best ways that they do it is to acquire because it takes so much energy to kind of- Yes, which is- Arc one to arc two, so. It, it did. And it's interesting you should mention m and Obviously, you know, as you go from that sort of one product to multiple product, because one of the key, like, I think there were two key insights, right? One is sort of looking around the corners and understanding where the industry is going to be in a few years and ship multiple products on top of the platform, which is to build it sort of organically. Uh, Palo Alto's approach obviously has been since Nikesh is like, hey, let's acquire um, and grow. And, and, you know, usually it's a combination of both, which made a lot of sense, by the way. Um, I, I guess the question for you is that, like, as you go to that scale, when you're sort of growing from, I don't know, quarter billion to now, obviously Nutanix is over a billion dollars in run rate. Anything on product and people scaling that you should think about? Like, is it just, you know, adding fuel to the fire, just, you know, hire more BD and sales and product people? Or are there like fundamentally different sort of trajectories? Yeah, no, I, think, I mean, every company goes through this, like Palo Alto, I know, uh, went through this. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Went through this. Every company goes through this. Is that I know people have this like oversimplified view, which is every two years you calibrate your team and assess whether they're who you would hire if they were interviewing for the next two years. Now, that sounds a little mercenary. And, and you know, frankly, you know, <laughs> you can go, I, I would caution people to do that too aggressively just because it changes the dynamics a little bit. But I'm just saying that if people had the, all the right good intent and all, that's the mindset to apply. But do it in an authentic, transparent way. That will be the trick where the team themselves know that we need to do this to put ourselves in the best spot for the next two years or the next four years. If you did it like in a surreptitious way and you hired recruiters to kind of go keep looking for the next VP of engineering or the next director of product or the next head of sales for regions, then that just breeds insecurities everywhere, right? However, there's a way to kind of do it in a very creative way, in my opinion, which is you're just saying, look, we just crossed this, but now instead of just being, if I'm, I'm just making this up, right? If I'm CrowdStrike, if I'm just doing an endpoint company, I finished doing AWS. No, no, no. I could actually be uh, way bigger than an endpoint company. And here's my long-term vision beyond being an endpoint company. And to do that, like when I look at like key functions, can those folks actually get us there? But that's a discussion that could be had with the team. You know, especially when you're successful is a great time to have that discussion. And and the most important thing is to put yourself in that, by the way, because most people, if you are a you know director of engineering and you're trying to do this or a director of product and trying to do this with your PMs, you have to put yourself as well, right? As in, are you the right person to lead that 
to that next level. And most people find it much harder to do, right? So that's in a scaling of arcs of multiplayer. One of the things that I found is that one of the biggest issues, again, just like if your arc one is doing well, that is your single biggest inhibitor to build arc two. And that's just not a salesperson hitting quota on old things. Your product person who's so good at arc one will always bitch and whine about arc two's products as to why are we taking resources from arc yes. one, putting it on arc two. I mean, you get, everybody knows this, right? And, and this is where ultimately product leadership, which is the tip of the spear more so than engineering in some ways, have to have that you know, sort of like step function mentality of thinking about portfolio management and how to expand the portfolio while still not compromising on focus. And that is an art. And, and people who are able to kind of step back and think that way ultimately are the people that will continue to scale for multiple arts. Because remember, right, the, the prior art was like in the 90s, you took 10 years on arc one. Like take Foundry. They took 10 years to build a world's best, I don't know, whatever they built, this combination of load balancing firewall, whatever that thing is, right? And same thing with Checkpoint maybe, right? So on a single product, you could you could make a lot of money for 10 years. Whereas in these days, you're talking about ARC2 coming in maybe in the third or fourth year, right? And, and yeah. also I think conventional wisdom thinks that your ARC1 is 10 years is actually much smaller now because there's lots of people reimagining things, lots of shifts happening and so forth. And so that's... That's the big thing with traditional product managers who have probably been in the in the 2000s and 90s is that they're so used to like having a single product and because it's it's correct, right? In some ways, which is you have to be singularly focused and all of these are distractions, right? For what it's worth, I think there's a, that is an, a little bit of an art there of portfolio management that folks who get it and know how to kind of balance things while retaining focus on art one, but also doing enough of art two will continue to grow. Whereas those folks who can't do that inevitably get. Great. Um, well said, yeah. Really good insights. Um, so in your talks, Sunil, uh, you've often talked about keeping things simple in the product. Now going back to the arc uh, point, as you travel through these arcs, how do you keep things simple still in your products? Yeah, I know it's a great question. That's actually super hard. And in fact, uh, unless until like, I'll tell you my journey of really understanding simple came firsthand from my Citrix days when uh, our CEO, Mark Templeton, yeah. and he was one of those extreme curiosity learners. And even my Nutanix founder of the years was like that, right? And, and at least in Mark's case, he had a degree in design before design was cool, right? Mm. Whenever that was, right? Industrial design. Yeah. Now, of course, design degrees are the rave, right? But uh, so he was a natural instinct to design. And when design became the thing in mid 2000s and so forth for enterprise companies, because design and consumer is a little bit natural. Yeah. I would argue design and enterprise is way harder in some ways. Yeah. And so therefore, through the lens of sitting beside someone who actually emphasized two things to me, one was the art of simple and the art of storytelling. And I'll tell you how they're related. But because great storytelling is also very simple, right, in many ways. But uh, just on the products being simple or keeping things simple and so forth. So tactically, there are a bunch of things that you should be thinking about. One is many companies, engineering and products do it. Most of product and engineers come from the traditional school of thought of innovation and, uh, and so forth. The standard 101 is to make UX half PM. 
Okay, mm-hmm. and design yeah. happens. And people are, are doing that ex- ex- extensively now. Pretty much all startups do that now. Yeah, I'd say one additional thing that I don't see that, that many folks doing that is, in addition to UX doing half PM, the PMs at least at least one of the PMs being an operator, not a product guy. As in, I'll give you an example. Like you know, we acquired this company called Chronicle. Yeah. To both the founders of Chronicle were actually security analysts at Google. Hmm. They were not security PMs. Hmm. And there's pros and cons, right? Obviously, there might be certain fundamental things that of building good products that may not have come to, but but I can tell you the sort of like signal of doing 10 things out of which eight out of 10 met the use cases for that particular uh, customer journey and so forth were very high. Architecturally, and there were a bunch of other trade-offs and product and all that could have been done. So that was the other thing, by the way, of keeping things simple. That's why I'm trying to focus on people part, because ultimately that's what it is, is that if you have the right cultural fabric to keep thinking that I have to simplify, if it's 10 steps, I have to get it to five steps, you know, but you can only do that if there's out of the eight to 10 people, they all understand the value. If you're the one or two designer or PM trying to do that and the engineers don't really get it, yeah. they can't empathize with it, it's hard. So that's the, the biggest thing that I found is any group that has a high degree of empathy for simplification is directly proportional to how effective you are in simplifying the next start. So if you only have two out of 10 that really understand why you need to simplify, then you're job is that much harder. So that's why one of the things that I would highly recommend that I tell people all the time is whenever you're building these product arcs or whichever it is, make sure that it's just not design led. At least a third of your product team needs to be operators. And that changes the dynamics of the input criteria that's coming into your into your product. Yeah, very well said. I mean, yeah, like you said, each of these themes can take a podcast in of itself. Um, yeah. But, you know, we, we've got a condensed version here, even with an hour. So I'm going to move to um, hopefully our last question, our last one or two questions before we go to the rapid fire, Sunil. So, you know, obviously cloud wars are arguably the biggest battles happening in the enterprise right now. What's going to be the winning play in the next five years? You know, you're really good at intuition and looking around the corners. What does the five year in the cloud wars look like? In your very uh, non-objective opinion. <laughs> well, I mean, look, obviously we are all in the security market. So yes. I'm not saying that I'll be biased, but I'm genuinely, that's one of the reasons why, like, just think about it, right? I have relatively little security background compared to most of yeah. you folks, right? Yeah. And so in fact, when I did the Google thing, it was it was mostly to kind of work closely with a few people like my manager or and so forth. That's a feature, not a bug, by the way, Sunil. But there was a reason to choose security versus, say, a few other areas. And again, this is where I I try to say, if you optimize for in the cloud wars, look for where the opportunity is is sort of most fertile. Hmm. As in, hey, yeah, could we build a better job with next generation ARM processors? Absolutely, there's going to be a little bit of an ARMS arms war there. But ultimately... You know, if you put enough resources this way and that way, at least in the next five years, right? We're not going to come up with a new chip per se that's going to change mankind, but those kinds of things, right? I think, you know, we could do things more hybrid. We could make things more whatever. But where are things where there's still going to be a lot of churn? Because that's where opportunity is. I see. And so clearly, in my opinion, that's one reason why I'm pretty bullish that the world of secure, you know, the world is going to continue to be unsafe. 
for many, many, many years. Doesn't matter with all the best efforts, right? That we're doing. And, you know, we've seen this now, uh, even in the last year and so forth. So at least in the cloud war. So what I'm hopeful for is I'm looking forward to the clouds actually coming together to compete in security with, uh, when I say with each other for, with partners on the top or alongside partners and so forth. But my point is that security as a market is going to have a lot of churn. And in doing so, I think in the, the cloud that actually takes a step function change in their approach to, to materially do something in the world of security, I think we'll type a standard. So that's one area for sure. I think if I look around the corner, that's like, okay, it's a fertile market. Yeah. The second one is I actually think the three clouds that we know of, if you remove productivity app, yeah, as in like O365, the three clouds don't really have an app per se, right? They haven't reimagined a business process. And I think it's only a matter of time before the, the surface area increases to include business process reimagination, right? By the three clouds. It has to, right? Because, you know, when you, when you think about, like, have you looked at, man, ServiceNow has been around for a long time. Like, it's an awesome company, great sales force, but I don't really think the technology is that great, right? So, uh, and the stack is quite antiquated and so forth. You know, we still have to think about think through what does it mean to kind of reimagine the CMDB of the future and all that. So, so I think that's another example of a thematic area where business process reimagination done by a cloud provider is probably at hand in the next five years. So anyway, those are two, two areas where I think there could be more exciting uh, developments on the cloud wars. So just related question before we go into the rapid fire. Among the big three, one of them owns the stack from end to end. Do you see that as a leg up compared to the others, others two, especially in, on the security side? You see, I think, yeah, yeah, good question. So I think, look, my, my and I'll, I'll talk about it from like directly answer the question about Google versus Amazon versus Azure, right? So we all know, right? Amazon's on one side, they're doing services and security. It's unclear what their security strategy is and all that. But look, they're a major provider there and they provide services for their customers on their platform. And everybody prob has to do something with them. Right, like just because that's where customers are, so you have to go play there. But it's unclear whether people actually fundamentally trust whether they have a partner strategy or so forth, right? But it's also unclear what their actual strategy is in my opinion. Now, on the other hand, I think Microsoft actually has done a commendable job of turning what I call a liability into a comp competency over the last ten years. Windows was the most hacked OS, probably still is, but uh, right, and they've taken all the work that they've done over the last decade into becoming a security business. They want to be the full stack, Neelima, as you said, and all that good stuff, right? I think Google, what we are trying to do is, 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 look, we are number three, and we genuinely believe that there needs to be a, a reasonable value in choice to, to uh, our customers. But at the same time, if choice can be coupled with leverage with partners, we just have to choose a few areas that we opine on and then build them as, like I was giving this example of platform products to which we can get synergies and lever leverage to our joint customers. So that's how we are thinking about that market as Google, saying that, look, there are a few areas that we will, we feel like we need to play in because we're Google and we have some competencies, but we're going to do it in a way that there's a strong ecosystem like EDR is a good example, like firewalls is a good example, right? I mean, these are, th these are things that we think that we can do a better job with leverage of partners. But the one thing though that I think 
in our strategy, it goes back to our simple thing is, ultimately though, if we can create the best of breed with the usability of best of suite, then that provider will win. And right now with a single stack, you get the best of suite, but you don't get the capability part. With the, obviously, the other, the other extreme, you don't get the operational simplicity. So the art here will be, and I don't know whether we'll do a good job yet, which we seen, but the art will be, while we partner and we have a portfolio of products internally and externally, the art is, can we truly simplify customer experience? Got it. Uh, one of the questions I was going to ask you is that sort of the underlying theme in your prediction, not predictions, but your sort of how you see the next five years in the cloud wars is, um, that applications and security being an application will sort of really rule and differentiate. But the computer, the infrastructure, just compute networking, et cetera, it's going to be by and large a commodity. Do you see any way, so, so you know, what, what Apple did with M1 chipset, right? Like completely changed the landscape where we thought that like, yeah, like hardware is hardware, like Moore's law have stopped. Is there any opportunity even with quantum computing and other type of technology whereby compute can become quote unquote sexy again and, and one of the vendors can, yeah. You're right on. I think, I actually think the commodity layers by default are where the true generational opportunities are, Ankur, ironically. Yeah, got it. Right? Because commodity layers are what is ignored, like to your point of computing, is is a generational opportunity. It's just that when you ask the question of next five years, the answer will be different than 10 years. That is true. Right? To me, yes, if you talk about a slightly longer horizon, you're absolutely right. Just what happened with ARM++, you're going to see probably another yeah. big variant coming soon. Yeah. And quantum, quantum obviously, has a lot of people have a lot of hopes on quantum. So we'll see. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Clearly, we needed two hours. Uh, no, no, no. Yeah. It's tough, are, thanks for, uh, thanks for keeping it easy. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, it's uh, it's just great insights. So I'll I'll go to and Nilima. The... By the way, he he said yeah. um, um, it was easy because he doesn't know what's coming. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. All right. So uh, since you are a product guy, I'm going to ask you some product questions. Mm. Uh, ready, Sunil? Sure. So with rapid fire, rapid fire, it's simple, easy, yes or no, quick answers. All right. Yeah, all right. What's your favorite B two B product? Favorite B2B product, TensorFlow. So there's a part B to this. You're now the GM of this product mm. and you have to double the revenue in a year. What's your number one go-to-market or product move on TensorFlow? You know, to me, TensorFlow, the reason I like it is because it's a generational platform capability. Mm. So my number one thing will be to figure out what my initial killer app is, like we talked about. Like Got something it. that actually solves a problem materially differently against a well-known budget, right? You know, all the usual characteristics of a good product, but built on TensorFlow. Uh, next um, killer, yes, yeah. go on. Sorry, this is not part of the question. Nilim, I didn't mean to steal your thunder. Um, do you have a killer app for ML? Like, I mean, not for TensorFlow, but is, yeah. what is going to be the first killer app for ML? No, I mean, no, I actually think it's already... Look, man, it's there. I genuinely think it's already there. Like, uh, you'd be surprised how much of search is powered by that, how much of ads are powered by that, right? How much of my, you know, Google Photos are powered by that, right? I mean, there's a lot of, I think, things that are seeping in. It's just that they seep in subliminally, Uncle, versus, oh, there is this intelligent device suddenly from this dumb device, right? It's a gradient, in my opinion, where the devices have become intelligent over time. So, I mean, think about it. Tesla... I don't know about whether they use ML or not. It's become an intelligent device, right? We know this. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So actually, piggybacking on that question, before I go to my next uh, one, yeah. when do you think ML, true ML will actually start impacting security products? And we know that it, it's kind of used in some layers, but it's not as good as... Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Products. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like this is, this is an example of knowing your limitations, right? I'm not sure I have a good answer there. All I know is that uh, you're correct. Right now, there's a lot of buzzword bingo there and, you know, there's incremental things. My gut tells me that a part of a security product that is driven by ML, we will know when ML has emerged is when 90% of that product efficacy could not have been done without a degree of learning. Like today, right? Uh, any like we talk about oh, ML in security operations, for example, like that's a, that's where a common ML in anomaly detection, and so forth. However, there's quite a bit of anomaly detection that you can still do without ML. So that's why it becomes mm. gray as to what was the real value of ML versus non-ML, right? In that area. However, if there was a app that was much more binary driven from ML in the security, as in 90% of it or whatever was only driven by ML, then I think that's, and if that app became very successful and all, is that I think people will look back and say, look, that's that's probably the starting point. So, and I don't know what that app is. Right. No. <laughs> in the process of developing a major capability for your product, you have only one option, time, people, scope. Which one are you picking? Easy answer to remove is to scope. So it's between time and people. I would obviously remove time, pick people. Okay. Right. Uh, because yeah. I think if you can, because in many ways, just to give you some clarity, yeah, yeah. if you hire the right people, they'll manufacture time for you. Okay. Yes. And uh, as in, uh, there are a few people, and you know, you've seen this, like they're 10X, we call it 10X engineers, right? And the reason why we call them 10x engineers is uh, not just a capacity thing, but they're also solving for time. That they're able to build a, a great product in maybe half the time that other people have done and so forth. Right? So I think you kind of answered the next question, but I'll ask nonetheless. Yeah. You can only build one big feature now in that scope. Uh, one that a bunch of customers have asked for. Another one where your CEO is asking you to build. Which one are you going to pick? No, I mean, yeah. So obviously the former, <laughs> right? I think, I, I think, as in, you know, what customers are asking for, right? Is the yeah. is the first choice, right? Look, I, I actually think that's what I'm saying to say, right? Like normally these tend to be, you know, easier to say on paper, hard to operationalize in reality, uh, especially depending on the personality of the CEO and everything else. Yeah. But. but you know, look, ultimately, remember the original discussion that we had about managing upwards, sideways, and all that. It all comes down to where you, you are in your progression of earning that respect. And and so there is no wrong answer because there may be the right answer is to listen to the CEO uh, because they may know something in the first year of founding the company because that's what that's what founders do, right? That's what leaders do, right? Like if you just listen to customers, you know, the famous saying, right? You have faster horse if, because yeah, Henry yeah. Ford didn't listen, whatever, you know, they built a car, right? You know, the usual analogy comes. So I think there's always going to be, you know, yeah. a few exceptions like that, but I would say that generally though, obviously, you know, as you get a little bit more, uh, you know, mature and a little bit more uh, self-sufficient and so forth, clearly you need to have conviction and the conviction needs to show. 
and especially the entrepreneur CEO, they have a sense for that. What percent of time did you disagreed and committed uh, with Tiraj? Uh, about 30% of the time. Oh, wow. Okay. So oh, yeah. 70% of the time you had your way. Well, or agreed also, right? Okay. Okay. No, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? There's two, yeah, two options. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, next question. You have an opportunity to run products at any company on the planet. Which product role are you picking outside of Google, of course? I think at my stage in my life and, you know, so personally, I'm just answering yeah. personally, I'd optimize for like, what are the levers, right? Uh, a great time for N years, which is basically great time means you need to, you know, really like the people that you're working with and you need to really like the opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, between those two. So those, that would be my two primary criteria I would apply. Great time equals, you know, great people plus whatever, great opportunity. And a second criteria would be, yeah, there has to be a reasonable outcome. Like you want to, you want to, and my definition, at least in Google, the way I think about it is versus doing it in a small company is there's a material chance to come from behind in a short period of time to leave a legacy that man, Google Cloud really, actually, we almost wrote it off two years ago but there were these 12 people that put it on the map. It can't be one person. I mean, Thomas has grown a great job. He's probably 50% of the reason, right? But I'm just saying, you know, there'll probably be 12 people that people recognize as people, they put cloud on the map at Google. And so a similar sort of feeling of leaving a legacy is important for me. There is no way, Sunil, if Elon Musk said, you get the top role at SpaceX, you're declining that role. No, no. There's no freaking way. No, no, but think about it. No, actually, no, no, no. That's it. So, so let's talk through that for a second, man. Mm. Assume that we got the job as president of the United States. Okay. But, I mean, I'm just saying equally big role. This is product. Right? Yeah. This is no, a no, product role question. <laughs> I'm just saying. So, you know, SpaceX, product officer. I think this, I genuinely believe, right? After a certain point, after a certain point, why do you want to mess up? your legacy, when you know you cannot do a good job. Yeah, you'll probably have a good time for six months, three months, or whatever. Maybe not even a good time for two days. But So I think you, you have to kind of, it has to be in that plus 20, 30% stretch, right? It has to be, you know, a reasonable stretch, but you you, you know when it's 5X and it's going to break, right? Like SpaceX, you know, you, you, you know I, I don't even remember my college physics that well, right? So there are some obvious things there that don't work for me to kind of go do spacing. Well, Sunil, you didn't answer the company name, though. No, uh, he said Google. That was a very safe answer. He said Google, basically. Yeah, or something yeah. like Google. <laughs> to, be honest, yeah, to be honest, I'm focused on that. I'm focused yeah. on that. Uh, of course. Of course. Makes a lot of sense. Totally. And last question, who should we invite next on the pod? I would say someone who can blend awesome um, uh, knowledge, storytelling, all-around good capability, but it's but he's already not hit the circuit as often as Dheeraj. Dheeraj has hit the circuit, so he's a, he's a good choice. Would actually be Sudhish Nair. So okay. Sudhish yeah. was, and I you know I can set it up, but, but basically he joined Dheeraj and uh, Mohit. I mean, all those guys are good people to talk to, right? But yeah, yeah. Sudhish joined them pretty early, almost like a lead sales guy, single person, has never led sales before. And then I'll let you, you know, if you guys get him on this thing, you'll know what I mean, right? He, he, can, he can provide a totally different uh, kind of uh, takeaways for these. Absolutely, guys. we're we're sucker for that kind of knowledge. So totally, 
Great. Um, Sunil, thank you. That wraps up this episode of Zero to Exit. It's been a pleasure to have you on the pod. We appreciate you taking the time. And uh, best wishes as you help Google Cloud Security reach newer heights. No, thank you, Nilman. Yeah. Ankur. No, this was a great pleasure. You know, I, I didn't tell you this, but I purpose I didn't listen to any of the uh, podcasts because I didn't want to be influenced by how yeah. good people were. But now that it's done, I'm actually because as I said this before we started, right? I you know I'm quite impressed by folks who are able to do these things out of genuine, you know, whatever intent. But you're doing it outside of your main thing. Yes, and, uh, and you're doing it in a very intentful way. Yeah. So uh, I'm a sucker for listening to podcasts. So I'm looking forward to actually going back and checking on a few of those, by the way. Yeah. So. Thank you so much, Sunil. Yeah. Uh, uh, wish you best uh, at Google Cloud. Obviously, you know, podcasts are said as companies, Palo Alto and Google, we have worked together and, you know, you've built an incredible machinery and uh, wishing you best. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Ankur. Thanks, Nilma. Thank Take you. Care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.